Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, how could a report on the condition of the pavement on the Red Hill Valley Parkway be ignored? The investigation continues. The U.S. and China escalating their trade war by throwing tariffs around. How does that affect us? And is Facebook too big to fail? Is it even possible to regulate it? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right. uh, This is just so troubling when uh, you think of all the trouble uh, the city went to to try to get the Red Hill Valley Parkway built and the link and such. A $25 million class action lawsuit has been filed on behalf of the drivers who've crashed on the Red Hill since it opened back in 2007. Two law firms have issued statement of claim in excess of $250 million against the city of Hamilton as a result of what they call negligent design, construction, and maintenance. A lawsuit states that over uh, 2,000 vehicles uh, have lost control on the road uh, in the past 12 years, resulting in either single or multiple vehicle crashes. Uh, The suit also asks for damages related to a 2013 report concerning the pavement slipperiness, uh, which was hidden for more than five years and will be the subject of a upcoming judicial inquiry. Uh, A bizarre scenario. Here is what uh, here is what Rob Hooper had to say. He is with Grosso Hooper. The speed was reduced uh, and they are repaving it way ahead of schedule. Um, this is a roadway that supposedly had 50-year guaranteed pavement, so uh, we're repaving it 12 years later. So uh, uh, I guess it uh, won't take rocket science to figure out why it's being repaved. <clears throat> All right, uh, let's bring in Ryan McGrail, editor Raise the Hammer. He is with us now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Thanks for having me on. What's your thought on this? I mean, my goodness. Uh, you know, it seems every time we try to get a project built in this city, it's just a mammoth undertaking, more so than others. And now this. What's your take on this? Oh, sure. I mean, there's, you know, I, th- I think it's important to remember that, you know, this class action lawsuit has only been introduced. It hasn't been proven in court. Yep. Uh, we're going to learn a lot between now and the end of that. And I think that's a really important process that has to happen, you know, in a civil uh, society like Canada. We use the courts in order to help us better understand how systems break down, where things go wrong, you know, and importantly, how we can prevent these things from happening in the future. You know, and and I think that's going to be an important, uh, very large source of information. Obviously, the judicial inquiry that you mentioned, that's a parallel process. It's also going to be happening, you know, and in that case, a judge will have subpoena power where they can actually dig in and really find out, you know, uh, with, with you know, on a basis where there are legal consequences for not disclosing your answer, they're going to find out who knew what, when, and why that process broke down as well. You know, there's, we've talked before about the culture in the city, and it's a, it's a culture of fear, it's a culture of secrecy, uh, it's a culture of protection, and uh, that culture needs to break down, it needs to change. This is a municipal government, this is a government that represents us as citizens, and they need to be answerable to us, not... Uh, you know, not to protecting themselves from the consequences of what they do or don't do. You know, over and above the the death and destruction that's happened uh, since since the highway opened. Um, you know, the lawyer mentioned a, a valid point. This pavement is supposed to have a fifty year guarantee. Nevertheless, of any of this, so here we are, twelve years later, and we're, re- we're rebuilding the darn thing. Sure, I mean, you know, it's possible that one of the things we'll learn is that the city, you know, and I'm, I'm speculating right now, I really want to make that clear, we may uh, learn that the city decided to make a trade-off 
where they went with a pavement that lasts longer, but maybe has a, you know, sort of lower coefficient of friction. And so they said, well, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to sort of prioritize long-lasting pavement above pavement that has maximal drip. I don't know that. It's just a speculation. But engineering always involves trade-offs, and there may be some reason why they decided to go with this particular type of pavement. And again, this is total speculation, but I remember hearing when this for, uh, story first broke that there could have also been situations in regard to uh, the composition of the pavement in regard to sound and, and the amount of, of traffic noise is given off. Obviously, this was a very sensitive area. It was a, a sensitive area to have uh, a highway built. And you could see how pavement that uh, somehow reduces friction, reduces the sound uh, of rumble on on a roadway would be appealing to to, p- to people who are concerned about environmental issues. So yeah, in that respect, we certainly don't know where the issue is. That being said, uh, the whole idea of the secrecy and this getting buried somewhere, I mean, uh, how do you think that's going to play out? I mean, at the, in the end, is, 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 is someone's name going to be attached to this? Well, I mean, you know, again, I'm, I'm of two minds. Uh, you know, on the one hand, if there is specific uh, negligence or malfeasance, we need to find out about that. We need to know who took responsibility for finding this report, receiving it, and making it go away. On the other hand, you know, it's, it's not enough just to point the finger and blame somebody. Yeah. We need to understand how we can prevent this, thing, this kind of thing from happening again. One interesting thing that's come out of this, and I think uh, I certainly didn't know, I suspect a lot of people didn't know, there are no national standards in Canada for highway paving. Yeah. You know, there are kind of industry practices. And uh, so this company, Tradewind, that was hired in 2013 to analyze the asphalt, they actually had to ref, uh, refer to uh, UK pavement standards because Canada doesn't have any. You know, uh, so there's an opportunity there to look at filling out our regulatory system. I know, you know, we all think regulations are bad, mm-hmm. regulations are terrible, and they stifle business and whatnot. Regulations protect us; they keep us safe. They ensure that when we build things, we build them to a standard that protects people's safety. Regulations aren't a bad thing. We hate regulations until a regulation could have saved somebody's life. Yeah, good point. Um, uh, it also uh, may appear that uh, something may have been lost in translation back and forth, the fact that the province doesn't have control of this highway. This is a major highway, um, but I guess still uh, below uh, the threshold, which is considered a, a major Ontario through affair. Uh, so you, you wonder if somehow uh, it didn't have the proper oversight that it should have. Well, that's entirely possible. I mean, the MTO has 60 years of experience in building 400 series highways. Hamilton really wanted to get into the highway building game. And so we've built a kind of a quasi 400 series highway. It's, you know, four lanes instead of six, but it's divided. It's limited access. So you have to, you know, use on ramps and off ramps. You know, maybe we just didn't have the expertise in-house to build this thing. And we didn't know what we didn't know about what was necessary. You know, again, I hope that the inquiry and the lawsuit will bring these issues out and give us the answers that we deserve. Do you think that, do you think had this report been tabled and and the proper eyes had seen it, would it have changed anything? I hope it would have given counsel uh, the information they needed to recognize the seriousness of the situation and to act sooner. You know, five years, how many people have died in the past five years? How many people have been seriously injured? You know, those those deaths and injuries were potentially preventable. Council should have had an opportunity to know the information and then make a decision. And then council would be responsible for, you know, for what they ended up deciding. As it is now, we don't know who's responsible. Also, you have to think, too, um, maybe somebody, and again, we're totally speculating here, um, you know, perhaps at the time it did not appear 
that it was that important. But obviously, as the stats on accidents started to rise, it would certainly have been more important as time passed. Yeah, it's it's really difficult to know kind of in what um, mindset. You know, I for, you know, I mean, when I read this report, it was after finding out it had been buried for five years and after reviewing the number of people who've been died and seriously injured. So I was reading it from that perspective. If I saw this report five years ago, you know, the question is, would I feel the same sense of urgency on reading that that this highway's asphalt is significantly uh, less frictionate than sort of the standard for, for Europe? I would hope that I would still recognize that that's a serious issue. You know, and certainly if you're a professional engineer and it's your job to think about these things, I would hope that they would see this and immediately recognize the importance of it. Is the province watching this and how, and how it shakes down? And in the end, do you think it will change planning moving forward on whether and who should be building these highways, who should be supervising this, whether it's a municipal issue or a provincial issue? I don't have any insight into kind of what attack the government is taking, but I certainly hope so. I mean, again, I don't want to make any sweeping kind of conclusions about what we should do. There are two large, important legal processes happening. And, you know, I think we need to wait until the end of those and see the final reports in order to understand what the lessons are. But I'm sure there will be lessons. And I really hope that we do apply those lessons in a systematic way so that we avoid these situations happening again. It just seems odd that something that took so long to build and there was so much thought and planning to 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 make it right and 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 suitable to the environment and 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 the area that it was traveling through that these mistakes were made i mean it's not like this thing wasn't studied and studied and studied and studied to death sure yeah absolutely and and again you know i mean we you know the it, it's impossible that the people who were ultimately responsible to lead this project didn't know what they didn't know about the kind of things they had to think about, you know, or maybe they did know and they decided to make decisions uh, that were based on the kind of sense or the prof- or the pressure they were getting from council. I mean, these are these are big questions and there probably aren't going to be any easy, neat, tidy answers. That's why the judicial inquiry and the lawsuit are so important, because they will get us those answers and they'll hopefully get us a little bit of justice as well. Any idea how long this whole process will take? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, a large class action lawsuit of $250 million, that's not going to get, you know, adjudicated in a week. I mean, I think we're going, this is going to dominate um, Hamilton politics probably for at least the next couple of years, if not longer. How do we make sure something like this does not happen with the LRT? Well, the good news is that Hamilton is not building the LRT. And that's something that I think mm. needs to be stressed over and over again. This is a Metrolinx project. You know, Metrolinx is a, a third-party crown agency that is uh, mandated and funded by the province um, and, you know, overseen by the by the MTO. They do have the expertise to build large rapid transit projects. They've already done it. They're continuing to do it. They're managing every rapid transit system in Ontario, uh, with, with sorry, in the, the greater Toronto and Hamilton area, I should say. They actually do have the chops to do this. And so I'm comforted by the fact that this large project is uh, being built by the agency at the right level. Anything we can learn from this whole uh, Red Hill uh, experience that we can apply to LRT? Uh, well, I guess it's, you know, again, it's, it's, it's difficult to say because it's still so early in the process. Um, you know, one thing I think is we need to sort of depoliticize these decisions a little bit more. 
you know, I realize that that's a little bit ironic considering we live in a liberal democracy and, and everything else ultimately political. But I think we need to get better at setting aside our, our partisanship, setting aside our kind of knee-jerk reactions and saying, what does the evidence tell us? What does the data actually show? What are the experts telling us about what we should do and what we shouldn't do? And we should allow ourselves to be guided a bit more by the best information and the best arguments we have and not just kind of cling, um, you know, defiantly to whatever knee-jerk opinion we have. Ryan McGrill has been with us, editor of Raise the Hammer, Red Hill Parkway class action suit, uh, set at uh, $250 million uh, filed against the city. Ryan, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks. Always a pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The United States has escalated its trade war by raising tariffs on Chinese exports uh, just hours after trade talks were held and failed to make a uh, breakthrough. Also, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has a phone conversation uh, with the president over this and uh, uh, the detainment of the Huawei CFO and such. Uh, To talk more about all of this, Bridget Matheson is with us, Director of Canada-U.S. Cross-Border Business Affairs with Argent Fox LLP, a law firm dealing with this. They are with us now. Bridget, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Not at all, Scott. So your take on Donald Trump's love affair with tariffs. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, he's uh, said as much uh, over the last few weeks that he finds uh, that uh, imposing tariffs on U.S. trading partners is a viable and best tool in his arsenal, and uh, he obviously is using it quite aggressively. As you mentioned in your piece, the latest being yesterday's uh, uh, announcement and the imposition of the uh, higher tariffs on imports from China and a huge chunk of imports from China uh, starting May 10th. Yes. So uh, talk about the the trade imbalance or balance between China and North America. Is it fair? Uh, Is Donald Trump's tactic a good one? Well, um, the uh, uh, U.S.-China trade deficits um, uh, has been a moving target in the last, I would say, the last six or seven months. It's pretty hard to draw a straight line between tariffs and uh, trade deficits because there's always a lag time. As you know, uh, 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 production doesn't stop and start on a dime, uh, nor do contracts. Um, however, I did see a recent interesting piece, I guess it was earlier today, that uh, container volume from the Asia-Pacific Rim to American seaports is at an all-time high. So I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, one is everyone's trying to get as much product out of China into the U.S. marketplace before tariffs and new tariffs or increases in tariffs are put in place. Mm. Um, uh, or uh, the tariffs don't seem to be making it, uh, much of an impact. I would imagine the first is probably more true than the second. So how is China reacting to this? Is, is Donald Trump, uh, obviously he's getting their attention with this, but is, is this going to spawn movement? Is this, is this bringing them to the table? Yeah, um, well, good question, as always, Scott. Uh, two things I would um, suggest. Um, it has spurred an immediate announcement, of course, from Beijing. Beijing will retaliate. Um, and uh, they were just waiting for the uh, first tariff uh, to be uh, collected this morning. And uh, so American exports into China 
will be now even more expensive. Uh, so who knows how containers from U.S. seaports will be returning to China in the future. Will they be less full or, or not? Second of all, um, I, I would say three things. Second of all, um, uh, congressional leaders on the Hill are growing increasingly worried about uh, these tariffs, not only the 301 tariffs on imports from China, but the uh, months-old 232 tariffs on imported steel and aluminum into the United States. Uh, so there is a growing sense of concern on the Hill. How that will translate this year is yet to be decided. Uh, Congress uh, many years ago gave a lot of leeway, discretionary leeway and statutory leeway to the executive branch on all things trade policy. Uh, they, uh, this, these recent actions may result in Congress taking that authority back, passing bills, getting more involved in these tariffs, um, looking for flexibility uh, by passing certain amendments, etc. Um, so all of this, of course, doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are another number of trade um, uh, files on their desk, including uh, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement. The third um, angle on all of this, especially the 301 tariffs on China and the announcement yesterday, is that other U.S. trading partners are watching, and that includes uh, the EU, uh, with whom the U.S. is also negotiating or hoping to negotiate a trade agreement. Um, and so this uh, punitive, uh, blunt weapon called tariffs at double digits, we're not talking 5%, we're talking 25%, mm-hmm. um, it's, is of grave concern. And um, I am sure many capitals around the world are watching. Um, we've heard for, for the last few decades, China's the golden goose. Everybody was trying to get in. Everybody was yeah. trying to get involved. Have we been naive in dealing with China? Has China, has China taken advantage of this? Um, well, that's a, let, me, let me answer that in a geopolitical sense. Um, uh, uh, here's what I've noticed about China, and probably all of your readers, uh, sorry, your listeners will agree. China has not been a passive trading partner um, sitting on the sidelines waiting for the U.S. marketplace to open up to them. Uh, they, their step into the WTO, the World Trading Organization, was the first critical step. That happened a number of years ago. But since then, Scott, they have acted um, very aggressively around the world, not just the United States. They see the world as their trading partner. One just has to look at their um, uh, belt and suspenders uh, um, uh, policy and their huge investments in uh, opening up markets in Africa and South America, seaports and supply lanes, etc. So um, uh, on that front, I don't think we've been naive. It's been the elephant in the room. We've all, we all have seen it. We've all read the media lines. Um, uh, what we may have been somewhat naive about is that we have not kept a pace. And that is what is, uh, frankly, hmm. most of concern to me. So, too, dependent on China and not doing the same thing that they're doing. Well, you know, that's right. And uh, um, all this takes an awful lot of money, infrastructure, etc. But it also takes long-term uh, planning and political will. 
Uh, many times, uh, and I'm certainly not defending Donald Trump, he can do that himself. Uh, he said he wants fair trade as much as free trade. That being said, with the dependency that North America now has on Chinese goods, is it too late? Do they have too much control over us now? That China has too much control over North America? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, they uh, they still need uh, critical uh, components and supplies from North America. Um, if they could diversify and buy from other parts of the world, they probably would have done that a number of years ago. Um, there are long-standing contractual obligations and joint ventures between North American companies. There are a lot of opportunities in China that China needs to and wants to exploit with uh, North American investment, for example. Um, so I wouldn't say it, it that it's been that extreme, but I think um, uh, we um, are in an era now where a tariff as part of the arsenal is probably not as immediately impactful as it was, say, in the 1940s and the 1950s. Mm. China has options. So do we. But in North America, but uh, um, when you have more options, a 25% tariff, well, you know what, I'll go find it somewhere else, or I will sell it somewhere else. And I think that's what the difference is now. Um, we've heard many experts say that this is China's century, the last one being the U.S.'s. Is China too big to fail? Can they do something wrong here? Scott, I just love your questions. They're so insightful. I must well, thank say. you. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, I really. Mean it's it. great. It's great. You, but <laughs> it's great talking to people who know so much. <laughs> um, um, I, I do think this is China's century. Actually, uh, on a on a personal note, I, I I can I can see how that could come uh, into uh, uh, into reality. That that is what we are facing. Um, uh, that being said, I hope that here in North America, uh, we have uh, a, our eyes squarely on the sites of innovation and new technologies. We are still ahead of the game on that front, and um, it is where all the good jobs are, including in the, uh, uh, the manufacturing sector, including in the automotive sector, and this is where the consumers are. And um, so I don't know uh, if it's the new century for China, but it is a new era in which the strength of China is obviously at play. Is They are obviously at the table. And hence uh, why uh, these trade talks between Beijing and Washington are very important. The, um, the vice premier of China did not cancel his trip to Washington today. Hmm. He, he is here. And so uh, if, uh, if they could ignore the United States marketplace, I'm not sure that trip would have taken place. Uh, that's an interesting point uh, to my, leading into my next question. Obviously, Canadians are, are, are wondering why China is bullying Canada and, and not the United States. Uh, China trying desperately to, to sell Huawei's 5G network here. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, many have security issues uh, with that. Um, China almost... Uh, uh, well, saying that there will be ramifications if, if we don't purchase their products. We've seen Canadians detained. Is China aware of how North America is now perceiving them differently than they were even a decade ago? Uh, or, or do they not care simply because they have their arms in so many different markets? I think the latter. 
I think they, yeah. uh, they, I think they feel uh, uh, on uh, steady, strong ground that they can be more aggressive uh, because trade is always a uh, two-way street, and uh, they know that a lot of, lot of many, many countries need to sell to China and uh, also need uh, investment from China, and so they are, um, you know, finding their wings and uh, spreading them. So Donald Trump uh, obviously announcing more tariffs, and and obviously even when when trade deals are signed, he keeps them in place to use his leverage. We're seeing that. Um, uh, With this latest round of tariffs, where is this going to end? Is this just going to continue all the way through his term here? Right. So um, that's what everyone is wondering, uh, including many of the uh, members of the investment community playing on the Dow Jones uh, stock market and the S&P. It took a dive uh, earlier this week, sort of steadied itself a little bit yesterday. And uh, it only steadied itself, according to some, uh, because they were hoping that the trade talks with China would continue, even though the tariffs were um, um, announced, and hopefully um, um, the tariffs would be modified. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, personally, uh, there are not a lot of people in Washington that uh, who think that the 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum, the 301 tariffs on China, are, are, are going to evaporate anytime soon. Congress is going to be out uh, in a long recess very soon for, their, for the summer. Um, when they come back in the fall, they're going to be embroiled in uh, funding bills for the government, for the administration, uh, which may lead into uh, another government, federal government shutdown. So if anything needs to happen on the trade front, it better happen before you know, June, July. And no one is seeing that in the crystal ball, none, none whatsoever. So... Uh, the the most exasperating thing on all of these tariffs for companies with whom we work is that there is no end in sight. Yeah. And so that uncertainty uh, just ripples through the supply chain, and it's just not good. Is this the new normal, do you think? Uh, well, well uh, in this administration, it is. Yeah, yeah there are a lot of uh, uh, folks in the White House or the White House circles who think that uh, tariffs are very viable and and get results and so it's uh, hard to shake these people with very entrenched views on that um, uh, and um, will so. these tariffs in the end uh, help to forge some sort of new trade deal will this you know because again it, there's always the feeling that there's been some sort of imbalance blah 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 will this in some way will we end up farther ahead will we end up with a better template after this is over uh what could happen with the US China bilateral agreement is that the enforcement provisions and here I'm talking about IPR and patent and other um uh trademark for example enforcement um uh data uh um protection issues um, uh, will take center stage in a trade agreement that hasn't been in the past, certainly not with China. Um, So I can see that happening as a result of maybe even today's talks um, here in Washington, D.C. I think, though, um, what we are going to see in North America and um, probably around the world in developed countries I think we're going to see more enforcement provisions just generally 
um, in these trade agreements, including, and this is the, what I really wanted to share with your listeners, um, I think uh, U.S. Customs and other U.S. border agencies are going to be watching uh, imports from Canada into the United States for fear of uh, mm. products being labeled as coming from Canada right. and really being uh, originating in China. And we that's certainly that. not a new problem, is it? No, it isn't, and it's certainly been heightened in the last few months. Uh, we're getting a lot of calls from companies saying, well, why all of a sudden is a 10 25% tariff being imposed on my product in the United States? So they're watching, and they're auditing, and um, uh, that's the new reality, I think, on the U.S.-Canada front, and, and North America, I should say. Mexico's having the same issues. So what do you think a win here is for Donald Trump? And I know I'm asking you the impossible, but, but, but what, what would he consider a win here? I think he would, cons- well, uh, let me just uh, use his own, uh, his own words and his own thinking that he's been tweeting and, uh, for a number of days now. His win uh, that he would see is um, uh, 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 China's Beijing commitment to not steal U.S. technology and a very strong enforcement chapter in a trade agreement. That's what I uh, think they also, um, secondary to that, would be uh, Beijing's commitment to buy more U.S. agricultural products. But number one ranks high. And for which he has a lot of, uh, the president has a lot of support here in the United States. A lot of companies have been complaining about uh, um, uh, China's illegal and unfair trade practices in the past. Different set of rules. They just don't play by the same rules we do. Uh, what about the Huawei CFO being detained in Vancouver? How much does this play a role in these negotiations? We remember what happened earlier when Donald Trump said something he shouldn't have and said that perhaps this could be leverage in the deal. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Uh, where do you see that going? Um, I, I don't know. I have uh, not heard that uh, conversation here in Washington for, for uh, a number of weeks now. And I, I, I just wouldn't be able to comment on that without with any amount of certainty whatsoever would uh, be unfair do you see this getting worse before getting better here's how i think it could get worse uh that um uh the u.s uh, mca or cosma is ratified uh with steel and aluminum tariffs still in place is that going to happen i mean i can't see canada doing that will they well, uh, it's not what Canada will do, it's what the United States will do. Yeah. And um, uh, USTR Robert Lighthizer has already said, yes, I know Canada and Mexico are very upset about these t- steel and aluminum tariffs. Um, we'll see if there's, quote, unquote, another way. That doesn't, he didn't say, we'll get rid of them, we'll um, uh, exempt Canada and Mexico. We'll just, he said, another way. So who knows what that means. Uh, everybody's sitting on the edge of their seat just waiting. Uh, Bridget yeah. Matheson is with us, Director of Canada-U.S. Cross-Border Business Affairs with Argent Fox LLP, a law firm dealing on this issue. Bridget, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Uh, this is fascinating. Many have talked uh, for many years about what should be done with the Internet, what should be done with social media, what should be done with... Uh, uh, outfits like Facebook and uh, Amazon, etc. And specifically with Facebook and security and the control and the power that they have, 
Um, and we'll ask Ian Lee this, but it'd be interesting, you know, you, you remember the days of breaking up the telephone companies, Bell and AT&T and such. I, I wonder how this compares to that scenario way back when. What's adding fuel to this fire is Chris Hughes, uh, one of the co-founders of Facebook, who has since left the company and, as he said, made about $500 million for his uh, three years of work uh, with them way back when at the beginning. Uh, He said it's time to tear this puppy down. It's time to uh, break it up, that it has just gotten too big and has uh, lost focus. To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and he is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. How can we compare this to other industries? Can we compare it to the days of of the telephone and and breaking up a Bell and AT&T? No, I don't think so. And I I fully disclose here, I do not have any investments of any kind whatsoever in any digital companies or Facebook or networking companies, uh, nor do I consult to them. I do not have a financial dog in the hunt. I don't have a conflict of interest. Um, I've certainly studied this. In fact, I studied, uh, well, monopolies and breaking up monopolies um, in the uh, when I was doing my Ph.D. in the 1980s. And uh, so I'm quite familiar with the antitrust in the late 1800s and again in when Ronald Reagan uh, actually, I think it was under Jimmy Carter, uh, broke up the, uh, it was Jimmy Carter president, uh, that, uh, broke up the, uh, ATT, uh, into the baby bells. Um, and, and the confusion is coming from the use of the word monopoly. What this author is, and I read it, the New York Times op-ed that he wrote, and he's one of the founders of Facebook. He's no longer with Facebook. He's mixing up monopoly, which means you have zero competitors. That's what monopoly means. Nobody else competes with you. Well, that's nonsense. Uh, He's confusing that with being big and successful and powerful. I do not want to suggest this doesn't mean that there aren't things that governments can do. But you, you, you break up. It's a very, very rare and unusual tool for governments to intervene in the private sector and break up a company unless there's something really egregious. And in this instance, he has, you know, they, you can say they're arrogant at, at Facebook and they've been careless and they've been greedy and, you know, but these aren't crimes. These may be bad behavior, but these aren't, they don't reach to the breaking up of a company. Maybe there's an argument. Uh, for uh, uh, t- going after them for anti-competitive practices because they have a competition act just like Canada, and they have a body, a regulatory body, just like we do, that can actually issue orders to cease and desist anti-competitive practices. Or they can amend the law uh, by an act of Congress in the States to give more teeth to the regulator. But I think it was, it's a mistake. It's a, it's a factual mistake to call Facebook a monopoly. It is not. It, there are many other uh, digital companies out there, social media companies, um, and so that's not accurate. And then the second question is, is this the optimal solution? And what he's really talking about is the fact that uh, uh, Facebook has been careless with privacy. Yeah. Well, what that suggests to me is we need to revisit the regulations that govern uh, companies, uh, social media companies, 
And that is a straightforward, I'm not saying it's easy, but, you know, just like regulation of banks is complex or regulation of pharmaceutical So this is a regulation for all companies, not just Facebook. Is there any reason that Facebook has to be zeroed on individually or would this be solved with regulations across the board? I believe it can be solved with regulations across the board because this issue of privacy is not just a Facebook issue. Um, You know, uh, banks have uh, privacy issues. My goodness, in the university, we are paranoid about privacy, I assure you, um, because of student grades and the sanctity uh, of student grades. Sanctity meaning we just won't disclose them to people, and we won't even disclose them to the parents. My goodness, uh, because we're so paranoid about uh, privacy. So are the hospitals. And so it's, it's a concern that everybody has, public sector, private sector. It's not a, quote, Facebook issue. It's a modern public policy problem issue. So uh, are we zeroing in and using Facebook as a scapegoat or just because they're in the news in regard to security issues? Uh, can we hold them to a higher account? I, I, this is getting into the almost the philosophy of regulation, and I've, I have, have had very uh, clear views, strong views for a long time on this, um, that uh, the law should, there should be a level playing field. In other words, um, this idea that, you know, we have we go after some companies because we don't like them because they're very big or the CEO is obnoxious or maybe unpleasant or rude or ignorant. We don't that, that that's not how we in a rule of law country we work. We have a set of rules that we apply to everybody to use a sports. I'm sorry about that, but, you know, I'm an NFL football player fan. I, I, I love the NFL. I follow it all the time. There's a set of rules out there and you don't apply it to some of the players on the field. You apply it to all the players on the field. So if somebody grabs a face mask, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be a superstar making $25 million a year. You still get penalized. You could be a rookie making very little money, and you grab the face mask. You're still penalized. In other words, we shouldn't be trying to customize penalties just to one company because now you're into uh, capricious behavior, the kind you see in a country like Russia where it's the whim of the, the grand leader who decides to go after one CEO versus another because he doesn't like him. And, and we, that is not rule of law. So we need to enhance, revise the regulations probably to establish minimum standards of privacy as well as uh, maybe a framework for losses how do you compensate people who had their privacy violated? There's things like that that are generic, well, which will apply to everybody, whether you're a bank, an airline, a university, or a Facebook. That's one thing that appealed uh, to everybody in regard to the Internet was it was sort of uh, the last frontier. There was no regulation. Uh, uh, it, it wasn't policed the way that uh, the typical telecom communications is. Are, problems, are, are politicians using uh, are expecting Facebook to handle this as opposed to them making the tough calls and actually coming up with these, with these general uh, regulations that would apply to everybody? Is it the politicians don't want to touch this because it's the last frontier? Um, I, up until now, the politicians in both Canada and the States have been very reluctant, I agree with you, uh, to confront it. I don't think it's because of some belief that it's the last frontier. I think um, the real uh, barrier, if I can call it that, is because they're frightened to death about dealing with speech. I mean, <laughs> the digital media companies are doing what? They're broadcasting, reproducing, or allowing people to communicate to a much larger world of listeners or readers um, particular views. 
And now you're smack dab in the middle of free speech, which we have learned in the last five or 10 years is one of the most controversial issues of all. It used to be so clear cut. Everybody was in favor of free speech. Who could be against it? And then we found out that some racists were using it and uh, bigots and uh, violent people um, and uh, really bad actors on both the left and the right. I'm talking far left and far right. And 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 so we now agree, no, 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 that's not good. We don't want racists to be able to promote racism or anti-Semitism or uh, hatred against Muslims. Uh, but now you tr- try and regulate the speech because now you're into regulating speech. And then you, it's really, really difficult. You know, uh, how do you regulate what's called fair comment and, and criticism of a policy uh, from uh, from spree, from uh, from hate speech? You know, you can just use the example of Israel or, or Islamophobia. You know, if you criticize certain uh, a country that uh, that is Islamic, are you engaged in Islamophobia? If you criticize Israel, are you anti-Jewish and so forth? And so I think that the politicians have steered clear of this just because it is so fraught with difficulty. At the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, I think people are concerned when all of a sudden someone straps a camera to themselves and then commits a crime yeah. or goes on a shooting spree while the whole dang thing is is live streamed on Facebook. Can yeah. they stop that? How do they get a handle on that? I mean, I think at the end of the day, this is this is the line in the sand for people. I, I think they can. Um, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but I certainly follow this issue very closely, as you can imagine. I'm in a university, and believe me, this discipline goes right to the core of what we do. Um, you know, when we when some student groups try and shut down some other student groups that are protesting, I mean, this and or shut down a professor who's coming because his views are controversial. We talk about this all the time. But I think that we can uh, pass a law, a parliament or a Congress could pass a law that would pass muster with the Supreme Court that would say, for example, you cannot broadcast a murder, a real murder in progress, or a rape, or some violent act against an innocent human being. I think that uh, uh, from what I've read so far, that uh, uh, regulations are law or regulations that prohibited that kind of behavior would not fall under the free speech provisions. I remember years ago taking the uh, uh, fascinating Canadian constitutional law course, and we were studying one of the famous decisions. It was a British decision, actually, about free speech. And the judge, this is an 1800s judge uh, uh, ruling, and he made that famous line that's been used ever since. You cannot scream fire in a crowded theater if there's no fire. You're not covered by free speech. So the idea that we cannot regulate free speech at all is not true. There's things you can't, you can't threaten to kill somebody, um, which is speech. You're uttering words, but you cannot do that. That's illegal. But, but whose responsibility is that? Is that the user or is that the company providing the platform that the user is using? Well, if it's under the criminal code, uh, the crime, uh, criminal code is prosecuted by the state, both in Canada UK and uh, and uh, and US. Um, if you're talking, if criminal is always prosecuted by the state, um, and, and you know judge, jury, and that sort of thing. If you're talking civil prosecution, you can have. I mean, the combines, the competition bureau, excuse me, is um, civil. That is to say, it's not those aren't criminal laws, and we have a tribunal of independent quasi-judicial people appointed by the government of the day to rule on anti-competitive practices. 
So you could, I, I think it's, I can contemplate or imagine a situation where there's a tribunal that regulates this, arm's length from the politicians to make sure it's not politicized and that we're starting to rule out free speech, I mean political speech, and then they could rule it on a case-by-case basis where, uh, based on complaints that are brought before them uh, to determine if indeed you were over the line uh, and had violated the bounds of, of uh, ordinary discourse. I, I'm not saying it's easy because we saw that with the Human Rights Tribunal when it started dealing with these questions. And they inevitably, the borderline ones, go to court. But over time, you establish a body of law through these rulings, and there's a sense emerges in society of what is acceptable and what is not. I mean, the more extreme, Scott, the more extreme stuff is already clear. You just can't go around calling uh, a, ra- a person who's of a racial minority um, really ignorant epithets mm-hmm. or, or um, names. I mean, that is just, we know you can be, well, you can get kicked off Facebook <laughs> and you can be prosecuted for spreading hate speech. So that's in the law now. The more border areas where you're, you know, as I said, you, you criticize some practice of some particular Muslim or a Muslim country, and then some people say, well, you know, that's Islamophobia. You criticize Israel. Some people say, well, that's anti-Semitism. This is where the gray, very gray area is, and that would probably require an independent quasi-judicial um, um, body to deal with those kinds of complaints. So the the laws are there, but do they need to be revamped for this technology? And and what will that take? I, I do believe that the laws are running behind. And now I'm not talking about the content of the speech. I'm talking about minimum standards of privacy. What can you... Uh, I mean, i give you a quick example. Student records are by law private. Medical records are by law private. There's just no ambiguity. The law states it. Okay, whereas... Property record, record of my house, mm-hmm. is not private. It is deemed to be public information. So anybody can go look up the details of my house or your house or anyone's house because it's public. So we've evolved definitions of what is private and what is public. I think we have to update those definitions for digital media and to define what is uh, private and what is public that is digital out there. You know, people sending photographs of their nude girlfriend or nude boyfriend um, um, or sending private. It could be just private, intimate conversations, text messages. Um, And, uh, you know, Prince Charles a few years ago was sending rather, I don't know what the word is, erotic um, text messages to his then girlfriend. And uh, they were quite graphic. I mean, is that protected? So we need to update the legislation to say, look, you know, uh, private communications between two adults is is private. It's just as private as student grades or medical records at the hospital or the doctor's office. So we're going to have to evolve definitions of what's in and what's out. And I think that's a first step without getting into how offensive was the speech, which is a different kettle of worms. That's a very more problematic uh, issue to deal with. So what's to stop, uh, you know, some crazed individual who decides to go on a shooting spree somewhere from live streaming the whole event? What, well, what What's to stop them from doing that? This is where, when I was, when I said we need to update the laws, we've got to impose the law, the, the proposed legislation. We'll have to impose a liability on the platform, on the company that's providing the platform. If we reveal, I as a professor, reveal student grades to somebody not entitled to them, which is anybody but the student, by the way, well, the university is liable for that. 
If the hospital releases my records to an insurance company without my permission, the hospital becomes liable for that behavior. And then there's a question, you can sue them or you can get, you can find them or the tribunal could find them or, and so forth. The, the penalties are ki- kick in at that point. So my point is when I say revising the laws, it's to establish a framework of A, what is acceptable and legal and what is not. And two, what are the penalties? If a company, any company, a Facebook, um, a Google, uh, any uh, digital company violates those rules. I mean, something as trivial as, okay, uh, I have a Home Depot credit card, which I almost never use. <laughs> well, what if they released that information about my credit score and my cre- the credit investigation they did on me? You know, that's not salacious. We're not talking it's sex or anything, but it, that, that's yeah. privileged information. So there should be penalties in place. So when you hear about a company that, you know, 16 million credit card numbers were released accidentally. Well, there should be fines in place and penalties in place for the violations that occur of privacy. So we need to update the privacy laws to provide more protection to people and compensation of some sort or another when the company violates those rules. That's where that's the first step, I believe. Then we have to deal the separate step is how do you deal um, with um, um, the gray, the borderline stuff. I mean, this, uh, broadcasting a uh, a murder in progress, a rape in progress, I mean, that's very cut and dry. Yeah. That should be prohibited. And the duty is imposed on the digital platform called Facebook or whomever to ensure that they have filters in place to stop it. And they certainly have, I believe, the technological know-how to catch that in real time and, and cut it off. Meaning, shut it, you know, shut it down. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.